0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph, and I'm Sham. In the mid-50s, two sisters obsessed with Elvis went missing, but the police were convinced they ran away to meet their idol. Their mother knew her daughters would never run off. She felt in her bones that something horrible had happened to her girls, but no one would believe her. This case has never been solved, and while many have forgotten about these girls, their family is still waiting for justice. Barbara Janine Grimes was born May 5, 1941, and a couple years later, her sister Patricia Kathleen Grimes was born on December 31, 1943, in Chicago, Illinois. They were two of six children, born to Joseph and Loretta Grimes, born right in the middle. They had two older sisters, Teresa and Shirley, and two younger brothers, Joey and Jimmy. In 1945, Loretta, a clerk for a pharmaceutical company, and Joseph, a union truck driver, divorced. By 1956, 11 years after their divorce, Joseph had remarried, but Loretta wasn't interested in finding love again. She worked very hard to provide for her family on her own, and her kids helped out however they could. Barbara, a 15-year-old high school sophomore, was known as the serious one of the two sisters. She was interested in art and worked part-time at a furniture store with her older sister. She always gave her paycheck and even her Christmas bonus to her mother to take care of their family. Twelve-year-old Patricia, nicknamed Petey, was free-spirited and a little flighty. Patricia was the one always calling the shots. She was energetic and outgoing, where Barbara was quiet and reserved. Patricia loved to have fun, but was still happy to do her part to help out around the house and care for their family. Despite the sisters being so different in personality, they were best friends and practically inseparable.
1: Well, I can relate to them. Me and my sister were completely different, too. I was always the down-to-earth one, and she had a fiery personality. We're eight years apart, but once I became a teenager, she became my best friend and honestly still is.
0: My sister and I are only three years apart, so very similar to Barbara and Patricia. We were best friends our entire childhood. I'd say the teenage years were where we grew apart the most, but we're still very close to this day. The bond between sisters is something special.
1: It really is. And I assume since they were inseparable, they shared some common interests outside of being just sisters.
0: Oh, yeah. In December of 1956, The girls had received a radio for Christmas and spent all of their free time listening to Elvis on the radio together. They were true Elvis superfans and were excitedly counting down the days until December 28th when they would go see Elvis Presley in Love Me Tender at the Brighton Theater in Chicago for the dozenth time. It was an exciting time. Patricia was about to turn 13 in a few days and the sisters wanted to celebrate. They almost lost out on the movie when the night before they had gotten home late from a friend's house. Loretta threatened to keep them home, but the girls begged and in the end she gave in, but told them they better be home by midnight, no excuses. As soon as they finished their dinner of tuna salad, they rushed to get ready. Barbara dressed in a yellow blouse, a gray tweed skirt, white bobby socks, and black ballet shoes. Patricia wore a yellow sweater and blue jeans with black shoes and a black jacket with white stripes on the sleeves. Both girls tied white scarves on their heads to keep their hair back and off they went. They ran out to catch the bus into town with a total of $2.50 between them. The average cost of a movie ticket back then was 59 cents and the bus would have cost them 15 cents each. If they went light on snacks at the movie, they would have just enough money to get back home to McKinley Park neighborhood on the bus that night.
1: I'd say that's cheap, but I'm sure it's equivalent to what they'd pay in 2021.
0: $2.50 in 1956 would be about $24.30 today. You could maybe see a movie with snacks for that. Possibly.
1: (laughs) Did everything (laughs) go as planned?
0: The movie theater was only a mile and a half from their house. So after a short bus ride, they were in line to buy tickets for what had quickly become their favorite movie by 7.30 p.m. That night, the theater was playing a double feature of Love Me Tender, and the girls couldn't resist the temptation of seeing it twice in one night. It cost them a little bit more, and it would be cutting it close to get home on time, but after some convincing by Patricia, Barbara gave in and the excited teenagers took their seats. Some of their friends were there, including Dorothy Weinert, from school. They waved her and her little sister over to the seats directly behind them. The first showing finished around 9.30 p.m. and Dorothy and her sister headed home. Before they left, Barbara and Patricia told Dorothy that they were staying for the second showing as they skipped off to join the line for popcorn at the concession stand. Midnight came and went. So Loretta sent 17-year-old Teresa and 14-year-old Joey to wait at the bus stop for their sisters, with orders to make sure they come straight home with no detours. By 2 a.m., the sisters still hadn't arrived. They hadn't been on any of the several buses that had stopped over the last two hours. So their siblings rushed home to tell their mother. The girls had never been this late before panicked, Loretta called the police at 2.15 a.m. on December 29th to report her daughter's missing. Initially, police believed the girls were just out with boys or had run away to go meet their heartthrob Elvis Presley in person, so their investigation was not as urgent. Loretta knew better. Her daughters would never run away, not even for Elvis. Plus, Patricia was about to turn 13 in a couple days. The older sister had promised to take both shopping the next day, and Patricia had already invited her friends over for a birthday party. She had been looking forward to that party, and there was no way that she would willingly miss it. What the hell? I feel
1: like the last thing I would assume is that they ran away to chase their celebrity crush. That couldn't have been a common thing. I mean, Elvis did have an underage wife, but that's risky.
0: I'm sure some teenage girls ran off to meet their idols, just like some do that today, but Barbara and Patricia don't really seem like the type. And they had plans the following days. They would have planned better if they were going to run away. Regardless, I'm a firm believer in treating every missing child as an emergency, even if you think they ran away. Children need to be found, no matter why they went missing. What a waste of precious time. Eventually, police realized the girls had been abducted, and much to Loretta's relief, the investigation was taken more seriously. They changed the report from runaway teenagers to an abduction. Officers from surrounding jurisdictions were drafted, a task force was set up, and hundreds of local volunteers helped search for the girls. Door canvassing began in Brighton Park, with 15,000 flyers distributed. Canals and rivers were searched, and a reward was put up by the family's local church for information. More than 300,000 people were questioned, and 2,000 of them were interrogated. On January 11, 1957, Loretta gave an interview to the Chicago Tribune pleading with whoever took her daughters. If someone is holding them, please let the girls call me. When the news of the missing sisters went national, Elvis Presley caught wind of the story, and on January 19th, he made a national radio plea for the girls to return home, saying, If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Tips poured in from all over the country, with alleged sightings of Barbara and Patricia. They ranged from seeing the girls after the movie listening to Elvis Presley records in a department store, to seeing the girls leaving on a bus station out of Chicago, A friend of Patricia's claimed to have received a phone call and hearing Patricia's voice on the other line. Most of the tips led nowhere and were easily debunked. The case was spiraling out of control, and Loretta was no closer to finding her daughters. The police needed a more reliable timeline for sightings of the girls after they left the movie.
1: Elvis's plea also made them sound like runaways, but also having a celebrity during those times shout you out? probably only added nonsense to the investigation, and also gave it the wrong attention.
0: Exactly. Elvis' fanatics were just going to see what they wanted to see to feel involved. More harm than good, for sure. Did what Elvis say lead to anything? There were so many sightings of the girls after their disappearance, and the times and locations contradicted each other. Police focused most heavily on the sightings claiming to have been directly after the movie let out. One 19-year-old woman who had been at the movie reported that the movie let out at 11.15 p.m. She remembered how crowded the entrance and the street had been as people lingered after the show. She claimed to have seen Barbara and Patricia and one other girl standing just outside the entrance of the theater talking to two boys. She said the boys looked to be older high school students. One had dark, slicked back hair and was wearing a Letterman jacket. The other boy had lighter hair, and she said he was not as good-looking. She wasn't sure if the boys were bothering the girls or not, so she asked if they needed a ride home. She claims Barbara replied, no, the boys are going to take us home. So she drove away. When a columnist for the Chicago Times Sun received a letter claiming to be a girl who had been with the sisters that night and had been forced into a car the night of the disappearance, police thought this might be the third girl the witness had seen. She claimed to have jumped out of the car, leaving the sisters behind. The girl provided a partial license plate, but nothing came of it, and they were unable to corroborate the story. A man named Roger Bernard had been sitting in the row behind the girls during the movie and said they all left around 11 p.m. He said they were headed in the same direction as he was, and he walked behind them for a few blocks. He claimed a green Buick pulled up next to the girls, but they kept walking and the car sped away. Then he said a dark colored Mercury pulled up next to them with at least two teenage boys inside. He said the girls giggled and chatted with the boys in the car for a few minutes, but then he turned off down another street and didn't see the girls again.
1: I mean, them talking to two boys their age doesn't seem far off.
0: Right, it's perfectly natural for teenage girls to flirt and talk with teenage boys at the movies.
1: Yeah, that's nothing new.
0: So did anything else come up? Uh, Yeah, so to further confuse these sightings, a truck driver said he saw the girls get picked up by a black mercury next to the theater around 10.43 p.m., which according to the other witnesses, would have been before the movie even finished. Another sighting police took very seriously was by a man who lived by the theater, That night, he was watching TV around 11 p.m. when he heard a car and loud music outside. He looked out his window and saw someone that looked like Barbara talking with a man looking to be in his early 20s. He said the man was about 6 foot, 180 pounds with bushy blonde hair. Another girl that looked like Patricia was talking to another young man near the other end of the car. The car was a black Mercury with double exhaust pipes and was parked at the curb, with two more men still inside the car. The police had doubts about his story. It was too tidy, too detailed, but his house would have been on the way home from the theater for the girls if they had decided to walk, and was on the route Roger Bernard claimed they took before also claiming to see them stopped by a dark Mercury. Alternatively, multiple people claimed they saw the girls get on a bus including the bus driver. They say the girls got off on Western Avenue around 1105, which would have placed them halfway home. Two local teenage boys named Ed Lorden and Earl Zastro had been driving around that night and claimed they saw the girls laughing and jumping out at each other from the doorways just a few blocks from the Grimes' home around 1130. Around that same neighborhood, there were reports of someone screaming sometime between 11 p.m. and midnight, but the source of the screams was never discovered.
1: That Mercury sounds like the car that the police should be looking for, and those two boys could have been the ones witnesses
0: saw. Buicks and Mercury's were two of the most popular cars in the 50s. I'm sure they were looking, but with so many similar cars, it would have been hard to narrow it down. Yeah, that's gotta be rough. Was there more, though? For the next 25 days, hundreds of thousands of tips flowed in from people claiming to have seen or interacted with Barbara and Patricia. A good majority of the tips came from Tennessee, reinforcing the idea that the girls had run away to find Elvis. Loretta and Joseph held on to hope that their daughters would be returned to them, and unfortunately that hope made them targets for cruel people. In January, Loretta received eight strange letters in the mail from someone claiming to have her daughters. The first letter told her to go to a Catholic church in Milwaukee and bring $1,000 with her. She was directed to place the money next to her on the pew, and Barbara would come in and take the money and leave, then return with Patricia. She insisted that she would do what this person asked with or without the help from police if there was any chance of getting her daughters back. The FBI went with her and instructed her to follow the instructions exactly. She sat in that church waiting, but no one came. She continued to receive letters, always instructing her to go to Milwaukee with money, and every time she went, and followed the instructions, hoping to get her daughters back. The FBI always went with her, but no one showed up to collect. Eventually, the FBI tracked the letters to a mental hospital where a patient had been writing them for fun. What a sick way to take advantage
1: of a grieving mother. However, with all that coverage the media gave this case, it's not a
0: surprise. And back then, the news media was even worse than it is now, if you can believe that. They sensationalized everything and didn't bother to try and verify facts. The news would report any rumors they thought people would find interesting, regardless of if it was true or not. Did they ever get anything reliable at this point? Police finally received a lead that felt credible when a taxi driver named Reno Valdez Eccles called in to say that he had seen the two girls sitting in a local diner near Skid Row with two men between 4 and 5 a.m. back on December 30th. Police followed up on the lead and showed pictures of Barbara and Patricia to the owners of the restaurant. She confirmed that she had also seen those girls on December 30th in the company of two men. She also identified one of the men they were with as a former dishwasher named Edward Bedwell. She further explained that she took note of it because the girl that looked like Patricia was staggering and one of the men had needed to help her walk. So these two men seemed to be a common factor for most of these witnesses, but she was staggering and that sounds like she may have been drugged. That's what police thought too. They finally had a name to put with all of these sightings, even though Edward was older than the teenage boys reported originally. Well, Sham will tell us more about how this case broke wide open after this short break. On January 22nd of 1957,
1: Leonard Prescott was driving east on German Church Road in Burridge when he thought he saw two mannequins on the other side of the guardrail. He went back to the house to get his wife, then came back and discovered the mannequins were actually the bodies of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. They immediately went home and called the police. Barbara and Patricia were found naked laying in the snow, and Patricia's body was laying across her sister's body, and both were frozen solid. There had been a big snowstorm on January 9th and 10th, covering their bodies completely in snow and making it impossible to see them from the road until the snow melted. Joseph was brought to the scene to identify his daughters, and at that moment the family's hopes were dashed. Medical examiners had to let the bodies thaw before conducting the autopsies, so Chicago police brought in both officers and local volunteers to search the area for clues in the meantime. No clothing, belongings, weapons, or any other significant evidence was found. Law enforcement was heavily criticized for contaminating the crime scene with local volunteers. If there had been any clues, they could have been overlooked or destroyed by inexperienced searchers. Not to mention that the killer or killers could have volunteered to search and removed all the evidence themselves.
0: Uh, It's never mannequins. At least he didn't just ignore it and he went back to investigate, though. Bringing untrained volunteers to walk around a crime scene is a really odd choice. We definitely have different standards for securing a crime scene to avoid contaminating evidence than we did back then.
1: That's like the number one rule in investigations. Do not contaminate the evidence. (laughs) Exactly.
0: So once they thought out, what did the autopsy
1: find? Autopsy reports showed that Barbara had wounds that looked like rodent bites and others that were shallow puncture wounds, possibly made by an ice pick. She also had bruises on her face and head, but no fatal wounds. The pathologists believed she had also had intercourse around the time of her death, but were unable to determine if it had been consensual or not. Patricia had bruises to her face and body as well, but no signs of sexual activity. There were no drugs, alcohol, or poison in their systems, and their stomach contents were found to include popcorn and the tuna salad dinner they had eaten the night of the 28th of December before leaving for the movie. This indicated that they had died approximately five hours after leaving the movie theater. With no injuries that could have killed them, investigators had to assume they were dumped in the snow naked, possibly unconscious, and frozen to death. Their death was officially ruled as simply murder, and secondary exposure to elements and freezing temperatures. In an effort to protect the family, a gentle summary of the results was reported to the media, along with a statement that there had been no sexual assault. However, three different independent pathologists conducted autopsies, to be sure. It could not agree on the cause or time of death. The disappointing resolution, with no evidence of traumatic violence, amplified the mystery and renewed pressure on the investigators. The location where the girls had been found brought a new suspect to the attention of investigators. A week earlier on January 15th, a man named Walter Kranz had called in an anonymous tip and said that he was a psychic and had dreamed that the police would find the bodies of Barbara and Patricia near Santa Fe Park. While nothing was found when they originally followed that lead, Santa Fe Park was a mile and a half from where the bodies were actually found, so police traced the call back to Walter and brought him in for questioning. He passed multiple polygraph tests, and it only spiked as
0: lying when they asked him if he had seen the bodies after death. Okay, that's a lot to unpack. First of all, Barbara was a child and was killed after the alleged sexual encounter, so I think it's safe to assume that it wasn't consensual. If their stomach contents were still what they ate the night of their disappearance, then all of those sightings after that night were wrong. And no matter what, it was not consensual. She was raped, point blank, period. The guy who said he was a psychic is interesting, but where he said they would be found didn't even turn out to be right, so who did they look into next? The investigators focused their attention instead on Edward Bidwell,
1: who had reportedly been seen with the girls and another man on December 30th. Edward also matched the description given by the witness who saw the girls talking to two men outside his house the night they had disappeared. Investigators were under a lot of pressure to solve this case, so officers picked up Edward and rushed him to an out of the way motel where they kept him restrained and interrogated him for three days. Edward was a 21 year old drifter and a former circus worker who had recently had jobs at the factory and as a dishwasher. Multiple cops took turns interrogating Edward for over those three days, threatening him and telling him that if he confessed, he was free to go. He insisted the girls he and his friend Frank had been with were not the Grimes sisters, but eventually police wore him down. On January 27th, Edward signed a 14-page type confession, where he claimed that he and the man he called Frank, whose actual name was William Cole Willingham, had met the girls at Madison Street Tavern on January 7th. They spent a week together drinking and shacking up at various hotels. The statement claimed that on January 13th, they fed the sisters hot dogs and then beat them to death when they resisted the men's sexual advances. He and Frank then dumped the sisters in a ditch. Police tracked down Frank and he admitted that he was with Edward and two girls, but it wasn't the Grime sisters and it was prior to their disappearance. He denied that anything else in the confession was true. He also stated that Edward couldn't read or write, so he likely didn't even know what the confession the police forced him to sign even said. It was rumored in the newspapers that the girls were known to stand outside of bars until someone was willing to go inside and buy drinks to bring out to them. There was no evidence that the girls had ever done that, and Loretta passionately insisted that that wasn't true. She didn't believe for a minute that Edward and Frank killed her daughters because they would have never gone anywhere with strangers. Almost immediately, Hole started appearing in the story the confession told. Shortly after the confession was signed, the autopsy reports came back and the medical experts concluded that the girls died late December 28th or very early December 29th. Edward's factory job time card provided an alibi for the night they disappeared. There were no hot dogs or alcohol found in either of the sisters' systems during the autopsy,
0: and the girls weren't beaten to death. We have seen forced confessions before, especially when the police are under pressure to close a high-profile case. Edward can't read or write, so the signed confession is bogus for sure. Not to mention, a motel in the middle of nowhere is not an appropriate place for an interrogation anyway. He has a solid alibi for when they went missing. I don't think he's the guy.
1: Overall, the confession made absolutely no sense. And it sounds like they were just trying to close this case without actually putting the work in to find the actual killer
0: i agree the justice system doesn't always care if the evidence doesn't add up did edward get let go
1: edward's defense attorney insisted that the confession was coerced, and the autopsy proved that edward was released from jail on bond on february 5th of 1957 which pissed off the cook county sheriff joseph loman and the investigator harry glows who believed that Edward was responsible. Harry Glows was the Cook County coroner's investigator at the time, and he publicly disagreed with the coroner's report. He had an impromptu press conference where he accused the coroner of covering up evidence and the facts of the case. He believed Edward was guilty and had held the girls captive until at least the 7th of January. He claimed the autopsies had been wrong or intentionally covered up. He publicly stated that the pieces of the report were false or misleading. He stated that there had been evidence of beating and it was not by animals. He believed that they had been alive until at least the 7th of January due to the ice found on their bodies. He also believed both girls had been sexually assaulted, claiming semen had been taken from Patricia's body as evidence. He also claimed that curdled milk had been found in Barbara's stomach, which she wasn't known to have had the night of her disappearance. He says it suggested that they were still alive after the night of their disappearances. After Harry went public, the chief of detectives did publicly admit that Barbara had signs of sexual activity, but insisted that neither girl was beaten. Harry was immediately fired, but Sheriff Lohman, who still believed Edward was guilty, stepped in. The sheriff believed that Edward had been released as a personal slight against himself and his political aspirations, so he brought Harry on as an unpaid special investigator on the case. After the Edward Bidwell debacle, several suspects emerged, but nothing stuck.
0: Well, hmm, I guess if he's telling the truth and the autopsy report was messed with or something was being covered up, it would be hard to believe anything the authorities were saying about the case. That's very concerning.
1: If I were the girl's family, I would take anything the authorities were telling me with a grain of salt.
0: How could they have missed the girls were sexually assaulted the first time around? It's a good question. So, Loretta didn't believe Edward killed her girls. Did she have any suspects of her own? Well, in May of 1957, Loretta
1: Grimes got a call at home from an unknown man with a very distinctive voice. He claimed to have undressed and killed the girls, and he also ridiculed the police investigation. At first, she thought it was just another cruel joke on a grieving mother, but then the man said something that made her blood run cold. He said, and I quote, I know something about your little girl that no one else knows, not even the police. The smallest girl's toes were crossed at the feet. End quote. No one outside the family knew that Patricia had two crossed toes. She was insecure about it and kept her feet hidden. This convinced Loretta that this man had killed and undressed her little girls. He then threatened her by saying her next child he took would be floating up in the river. A year after the first call, Loretta received another call from the same distinct voice. He said, he said, I've committed another perfect crime. This is another one the cops won't be able to solve, and they're not going to be able to blame Bedwell this time. Police were never
0: able to identify the caller. This is very convincing. He knows personal information about the victim that he shouldn't know, but they could trace the psychics call, but not these calls. That's weird to me. They pretty much pick and choose when they want to use their resources or not, which is trash. Did they ever figure out exactly what happened to Barbara and Patricia? 65 years later, this case is
1: still unsolved. But we do have several theories. Theory number one is that Barbara and Patricia were killed by a man named Charles Milquist. He was later found guilty in 1959 of murdering another 15-year-old girl named Bonnie Lee Scott. Her nude body was discarded on the side of the road in a wooded area, a few miles from where the Grimes sisters died. Authorities did actually try to question Charles back in 1957 about Barbara and Patricia. They learned about him after police found a list of girls, including young women at the Grimes neighborhood at his apartment, but his lawyer Robert McDonald prevented it. Robert McDonald also represented a big Chicago mob boss at the time and was married to another mobster's daughter. Ray Johnson, a former police officer and lecturer who writes the Chicago History Cop blog, thinks Charles played a role in the crime, but was protected because of the ties to the Chicago mob. In fact, narcotics detective Sheldon Teller, who was one of the lead investigators in the Grimes case, was later charged and convicted of coordinated narcotics sales for the very mobsters connected to Charles' lawyer. One reason Ray suspects Charles is due to those suspicious phone calls Doretta Grimes received in 1957 and 1959. The second call she received, where the man said that he committed another perfect crime, happened on the same night that the newspaper reported the discovery of Bonnie Lee Scott's body. The other reason he suspects Charles is because of the similarities between the murders. Bonnie had a troubled past and was having trouble in school, So when she didn't come home on September 22nd of 1958, her grandmother assumed that she had run away again and called the police. Police questioned the people in Bonnie's life, including her boyfriend, Charles. Charles claimed to have met Bonnie at a carnival the year before when she was 14 and he was 20. But he said that he didn't know how young she was until he met her family. He claimed once he found out her age, he became more of a big brother to her than a boyfriend.
0: Uh, sure. Okay. It's not like she was 17, not quite 18 yet. She was 14. A guy in his 20s can tell the difference between 18 and 14. I don't believe for a minute that he became more of a big brother once he learned her age. The timing of all of this does seem really likely that he was the person who called Loretta, or at least someone pretending to be him.
1: He's literally the textbook definition of a pedophile. There is no reason he needed to go after a 14-year-old preteen instead of an adult. You know what I was doing at 14? Watching Disney Channel and collecting lip smackers. Oh, same.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What exactly happened to Bonnie?
1: Charles volunteered to drive her grandmother around the city looking for Bonnie, but she wasn't found until the middle of November when a group of Boy Scouts were on a nature walk and found the body of a girl 15 feet off the side of the road. She was badly decomposed, and her head had been removed. Her head was discovered 20 yards away from her body. Once her body was confirmed, the police picked up Charles again. His story didn't line up, and he was an odd guy, but he seemed very willing to cooperate in the investigation. He requested a polygraph test, and it showed that he was lying. He took another polygraph test, and during that one, he confessed to killing Bonnie in gory detail. He said that on the 22nd, he picked her up from her house and they parked somewhere to mess around when he went too far and he had a pillow over her face for too long and she stopped breathing. After he accidentally killed her, he removed her clothes and drove her to the location where her body was found. He rolled her over the guardrail and dragged her into a thicket. The next day he woke up and thought, what a crazy dream. A week later, he said he drove back to the spot to see if it had really happened. He just happened to have brought a large hunting knife with him, which he said he had got the urge to use to cut her head off when he saw her. (laughs) Right. Additionally, Charles had a history of rendering girlfriends unconscious using the military chokehold. Ex-girlfriends confirmed that he had used this on them and it tended to leave bruises on their faces, very similar to the bruises found on Barbara and Patricia. Charles was sentenced to 99 years in prison, but only served eight before being released, getting married, and having two kids of his own.
0: Okay, the bruises piece is a huge connection. That would explain a lot. But how the hell did this guy only serve eight years of a 99-year sentence for murder? Girl, America's
1: justice system has always been flawed.
0: (laughs) What other theories do we have?
1: Theory number two, another suspect in the case was self-proclaimed psychic Walter Kranz who said that he had dreamed of the location of the girls' bodies. The girls weren't found where he said that they would be, in Santa Fe Park, but the fact that they were found just down the road made people suspicious that he had something to do with their deaths. There's an interesting theory that Walter didn't really have a vision, but actually saw the bodies in Santa Fe Park, and made up a psychic story to distance himself from the crime. It's then speculated that someone tipped off the owner of Santa Fe Park before police searched the area after receiving the tip. There was enough time between the call and the search for the owner of the park to move the bodies to where they were later found. In fact, Leonard Prescott, the man who had found them, was the cousin of the man who owned the park. It was pointed out that it would have been very difficult for someone to actually see the bodies from the road at that angle. So it's theorized that while the owner of the park didn't have anything to do with the murders, he didn't want the bad press and moved the bodies. It's possible the plan was to report the bodies right away, but the snowstorm made it impossible for someone to randomly see the girls. He waited, and then had his cousin discover them once the snow melted. This one even ties into the theory about Charles. If he did kill those girls and tried to return to the bodies to decapitate them like he did with Bonnie, he may have been unable to, because they were no
0: longer where he left them. That makes a lot of sense, actually. The only part he spiked on the lie detector test was that he saw the bodies. I totally believe this could have happened. Yeah, it's believable. And by calling it in,
1: they did try to do the right thing, I suppose. But that's a lot of evidence tampering that shouldn't be ignored.
0: Absolutely.
1: So, what about Edward? Is he still on the list? Many people still believe Edward Bidwell is guilty. Even if you ignore his alibi and the autopsy report, it doesn't add up. Eventually, an Indian girl named Irene Dean came forward saying that she was one of the girls that were with Edward and Frank in December, and the other girl was her friend. There is no evidence that Edward or Frank was anywhere near Barbara or Patricia. Some people would go as far to say that the witness that claims to have seen the girls talking to a man outside his house that looked exactly like Edward was a plant by the mob. Some people suspect that Edward was intended to be the fall guy to protect whoever actually killed the Grimes sisters. The witness did only come forward with this information after Edward had been identified as a suspect and police immediately found the statement suspicious due to the level of detail he was allegedly able to see, looking out his window on a dark street in the middle of the night.
0: Barbara and Patricia didn't look Indian at all. People just see what they want to see, I guess.
1: Not at all. Even in the dark, I'd be able to tell the difference, but that's just me.
0: What about all those sightings of them talking to teenage boys?
1: Theory number four is that the sisters died after a liaison with some local teenage boys who took them for a ride, then abandoned them in the snow to freeze to death. A local man told the police that he saw Barbara talking with a couple teenage boys in a car as Patricia watched the night they went missing. One of the boys reportedly told Barbara, you'll be sorry, before driving away. They also matched the description of the boys seen talking to Barbara and Patricia outside the entrance to the movie theater. Some find it hard to believe that it's a coincidence that those same teenagers also match the description of the two boys who reported seeing the girls laughing and jumping out at each other a few blocks away from the Grimes' home. They also drove a green Buick, just like the one seen by multiple witnesses trying to pick up the girls after the show. That same night, around 2 a.m., close friends of these boys were picked up for fighting, and they confessed to police that they had all forced two girls into their car and raped one of them then claimed they stripped the girls naked and forced them out of the car at knife point on the same street where the girls were later found. They said they intended to go back and pick them up. It was supposed to be funny, but they couldn't find the girls again after that. All of the teenage boys were released after questioning. Coincidentally,
0: one of the boys was the son of a Cook County Sheriff's Department sergeant. Okay, this theory makes the most sense to me. It connects all the dots— The boys' story, when picked up that night, describes exactly what happened to the girls. And one of them is the son of an officer in the sheriff's department that would 100% be covered up.
1: I mean, they're the killers to me. It's so obvious, and it would make sense as to why the sheriffs were so eager to pin it on anyone else. The boys didn't do themselves any favors by speaking up in the first place.
0: No matter how good the theories are, this poor family never got closure.
1: Loretta Grimes died in December of 1989, at the age of 83. Before she passed, she begged the police to promise to never give up on finding out who killed her girls. The case remains open to this day, and the killer has never been caught. Patricia and Barbara's brother James was 11 years old when his sisters were killed. In an interview with CBS2, he said that he's still haunted by the unanswered questions. Ray Johnson hopes a documentary he has in the works will boost public interest and eventually lead to more people contributing resources to solving this case. He's quoted as saying, that's the whole idea, is to keep it in the public eye so people keep looking at it. Somebody knows something and has heard something. He has even started a Facebook group to help share information about the case and it has since grown to 1,700 members. It connects the surviving family, friends, neighbors, and amateur sleuths. All are interested in finding out what happened to those young girls. If you have any information regarding the Grimes sisters murders, please contact the Cook County Sheriff's police cold case unit at 708-865-4549.
0: Barbara and Patricia were young, innocent, and happy. Someone stole their light from this world and from their family. This case is another example of why it's so important to treat every case with the utmost urgency. If their disappearance had been taken seriously from the start, instead of assuming they were runaways, could it have made a difference? We may never know, but we still hope they get justice someday, even after all these years.
1: Most crimes need the community's help to solve. For that, there's Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. If you have knowledge of a crime, call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide. They will never ask you for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page, or you can download the P3 Tips app.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndConjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check our Instagram at Crime and conjure Podcast for our question of the week.
1: Steph, what's our Conjure tip of the week?
0: Today I want to tell you about Rhodonite. It's known as the emotional healing stone. During difficult times, this stone is great for projecting a calming effect to help keep us centered. Rhodonite is rich in self-love and excellent at helping you to heal old wounds. It doesn't just patch up the pain, but instead guides you through the journey of clearing the heart and activating the love you need to get through this. In time, Rhodonite helps you let go of the emotions that are no longer serving you and move to a place of gentle acceptance.
1: So if you're going through something or know somebody that is, give them with a rhodonite necklace they can carry with them. We'll be back next week with another episode.
0: Until Until next time, time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers!